Welcome to 21st Century Women, the podcast that celebrates fabulous women doing interesting things. Each month, Jenna Watts explores different topics with the help of women who are high achievers in their field. They chat without judgment, learn from each other, and have a good laugh along the way. And now, here's Jenna. Hello and welcome back, or if it's your very first time, a very warm welcome. This is the month of the future. We are living and breathing the digital era, and with that comes change, a combination of fast, exciting, and scary change, plus a whole lot of the unknown. So this week, we're exploring the future of education with highly regarded and Professor Vice-Chancellor of Deakin University, Jane Denhollander. Welcome, Jane, and thank you for chatting with us today. Well, it's lovely to be here, Jenna. Thank you so much for asking. So I'm very excited to talk about the future of education with you. Um, education systems were built to teach the lessons of the past to new generation. Now, there's a lot of history and past lessons that can be found instantaneously on this beautiful thing called Google. So in your opinion, what is the purpose of the education system today? Well, you're absolutely right. The universities that um, that exist in Australia were built in for the ni- 18th, 19th and 20th century. And here we are approaching the middle of the 21st century. And you can Google if you want to upskill. You can go to YouTube. If you um, want a quick course, you can go to one of the many, many private providers. So universities are having to look at what they do and how they do that. And so we no longer have a sage on the stage in huge lecture theatres. We do some of that, but a lot of what we now do is broken down. We've disaggregated our degrees to start doing them in bite size because if there's two things that the new consumer, the new student learner is interested in, and they're school leavers as well as people who are beyond school all the way up to advanced middle age, is time and cost. And how you manage those things into the future is going to be the most significant thing because we now compete with the whole world. The other big thing is artificial intelligence and machine learning and the impact that will have on the kind of work we do. Do you think that online courses do provide students with just as many tools and resources as, say, face-to-face learning does? I think that the best situation is small groups with someone who can enable them to have the conversations on the basis of evidence and get to truth. Online has a wonderful place. In, a, in an ideal world, my view is that young, younger people, 17 and 18-year-olds coming out of school into higher education, and it is higher, it's harder, um, are, better, are better enabled being on a campus at least for their first year and possibly their second year. Beyond that and into postgraduate, if you're working, if you're working mothers, you're working and caring, you're working and studying, then the, the online system, of course, is a great enabler. Deacon's history was as a distance educator when we provided envelopes of study guides to people who couldn't get to the city. Mm-hmm. Our future is providing instant, cloud-enabled, beautiful campuses in the, in, online for people to come and do their study when they want it and how they want it um, and in a format that suits their needs rather than the way the teacher of when I was a girl used to teach. Here's what we're doing today and there'll be an exam. 
today, exams are negotiable because there are other ways of testing whether you know what, you, what you're supposed to know. Speaking of exams and assessments, how will that change in years to come? You know, when I was at uni and do, at school, it was a sit-down, written exam. What will it be like in the future or 20 years or 10 years, even five years? So in, in a little while, I think exams as they were done, especially written with a pen or a pencil, that's history, that there may be some online exams. But the trend is to testing what you know um, by demonstrating skills. So you don't need to know the longest river in the world. You don't need to know the enzymes of the Krebs cycle. I'm a biochemist. What you need to understand is what do you do to a river that's deoxygenated? Could you could you develop a plan for the Murray-Darling and the great disaster we've just had? The application of your knowledge to a real-world problem is how we'll start to assess people and employers will do more of that. The places they want to go um, will want to come to the university and say, what are the credentials this person has for being able to problem solve, being able to reason critically, being able to communicate with whomever it is about the issue or explain something to them or listen to what their problem is and then go away and provide a solution. Those innate, what we used to call the soft skills, are going to be the skills that you as an employer will assess your future employees on, rather than do you know the whole history of the British Empire? Yeah. You don't need to because that's one click away on Google. So when we have Google and we have all of this information at our fingertips, we don't need to necessarily store it in our brains. And then we talk about emotional intelligence, we talk about IQ, AQ, all of these things that are evolving. The question I've got is, is there a concern then that the, you know, higher education courses like arts and commerce and things that aren't typically, you're not a nurse or a doctor or a lawyer, I can say this because I've done a degree like this, I've done a communication business degree. So my question is, are these courses necessary and do do they set these people up for, you know, to live a prosperous life? prosperous life? So the short answer is yes. Of course I'd say that I'm a vice chancellor of a university, but this I do know. Even if we have artificial intelligence and machines do all the process work that none of us want to do, and many jobs will go as a consequence, there will be a need for educated people to train those machines, Mm. to to enable that artificial intelligence, whatever it is, to do the things that they're very good at doing. The innate human skills about what is creative, what does the future look like, will need the kind of skills that those non-vocational degrees, particularly the arts, particularly the general sciences, um, help you with. Being able to problem solve, being able to decide what is a fact and what is fake news. Being able to assess this article is evidence-free and in fact is lying because over here there is something that is more based in what real-world rules are. Those skills will become the skills of the future, and I'll add two others. The capacity to be interculturally sensitive, being able to work across gender, Mm -hmm. being able to work with diversity, and being able to work with those who are completely different culture from you or me will become essential skills in such a connected world. We are all one click away from the rest of the the billions of people in this world. How we learn to work with them and communicate with them is going to be important. 
The other big question is will we all work the incredible long hours we work today in 50 years? And, you know, it was the time was 1984. People said, you know, we'd have leisure time, nobody would work anymore. I think we are approaching a period where machines will do some of the tasks that many of us don't want to do or would like to do, but we are going to be overtaken by a more affordable way. And you think of some of those process jobs in the world, truck drivers, we think trucks will be automated. We all, we all know where we're going with driverless vehicles, driverless cars. Lawyers who do all the precedents, who sit and read through journal after journal, getting the information, that will become a machine task. The lawyer will then go to the higher end, explaining to you in words of, of, in language that you understand what the case is and what you need to get from that case. But you won't need that fleet of people behind you. So those jobs will change. You don't lose lawyers, they become different kinds of people. Radiologists, you're not going to have a radiologist take the photograph, the machine's doing that. You may want someone to be very nice telling you bad news. Mm, that is true. So to complement all of these new roles, so to speak, what are some new careers or degrees that we, courses, let's say, that we'll start to see in five or 10 years, do you think? The course, so what you study, do the, the general advice and advice down the ages is do something you're interested in. So I, if I had to start again, I'd still do science. Yeah. I'm interested in science. It's given me an incredible grasp of the world. But what we need to do is now teach those other soft skills, capacity to communicate, capacity to ration, to reasonably, critically understand something and make a decision between what is right and what is wrong, to be culturally sensitive, to work across barriers and to always be curious. So the whole drive to upskill constantly. The days of you did a three-year degree 40 years ago and that's it for life are gone. Mm. We must all upskill all the time. And you look at look what you're doing here. You're now a technical expert on how to do a podcast. It's all You've set up every part of this. Yeah. 10 years ago, you'd have had five people behind you and there'd be a television camera. Mm. Look at me. At my, you know, I'm about to retire and look at this computer. I can do anything. I pretty much run a billion-dollar operation on my phone. Mm because my phone is so smart. Mm. But I've had to learn to use that smartness. So I've had to upskill. Upskilling will be the thing that those who are not going to be caught by the digital revolution will use all the time to stay one step ahead of the innovation, stay with the innovation, and you will always have something to do. So if I was to go back tomorrow and upskill in one area without knowing me that well, what, where, would you suggest, is there some place, is it technology, is it some area that is just a given that I should go and look at? Look, I'd always stay abreast with what is current. Um, it, for me, it's always about understanding what is the world doing at the moment. So the great moral challenges, you would want to know about climate change, about migration, about why people are moving around the world. Beyond that, and that's general knowledge which makes you a citizen, beyond that, do what interests you. Mm. But from that, make sure you come out with some of the skills of the future. Understand about artificial intelligence. Understand about business. My great view of the world going forward is that many of us are going to work in small, medium enterprise in the startup culture. There will be big corporates and there will be interesting jobs there. But the more interesting jobs are going to be at the innovation barrier, 
particularly because of digital and the kind of things you do there. Being able to work in teams, learning to work in teams with other people who are different from yourself. If you have that skill where you can step out and be the team leader, step back in and be a team player, that's gold. So there's a lot of us in Australia who may not be exposed to different cultures and it takes time or travel. So how do you suggest, uh, how do you help people to develop those skills or be open to working, you know, in teams with all kinds of people? Because sometimes it's foreign for people in Australia. Absolutely, and it's hard. So at university, if you go to a graduation ceremony and the student valedictory, they often say, oh, and we all hated group work. Of course you hate group work. By definition, it's really difficult. It's teaching you for that absolutely valuable skill of working in a team and mostly we'll put people together so we'll make sure Jenna that you don't sit next to someone who looks like you or who um, perhaps has your your heritage we may put you with people from India from Sri Lanka from the United States from Canada from Pakistan maybe different religions maybe different um, sexuality and gender why because you'll have to get interested in them and learn to work with them in order to get the project done. It may be a really gritty experience and you'd much rather have just done the work at your home, got it done so you could go out with your friends or look after what your baby or whatever it is. You have to really spend time on it. Most students as they graduate saying, thank you God, no more group work. And then they hit the workplace. And what's in the workplace? A team. Mm. And all those skills come back into play. The best way to get those skills, universities are fantastic for that. Everybody's in the melting pot of a university. The person sitting next to you is the person you have to work with. Um, if you can't have that, just go and join some community organisations and get involved and do volunteer stuff. You're listening to 21st Century Women podcast with Jenna Watts. You can connect with Jenna on Instagram at 21st Century Women Podcast or email her at Jenna at JennaWatts.com.au. And I've got a question. It's a, maybe a little bit sort of off-centre, but we talk about the Scandinavian education Aha. system. It's something I'm interested in. In my travels, coming across Hugo Living and the way that they live throughout Scandinavia really interests me. And so, I, and so coming to talk to you, I did a little bit of you know background searching in around the education in Scandinavia countries. And I learned, and I might not be right, but my understanding is that children start formal education from the age of seven, and they're all about play um, before that. School children in Finland have a mandatory 15-minute outdoor free play break every hour, which I think is really cool. Um, and there's just so much that I think is you know, we are, I admire, why doesn't schools in Australia adopt some of the ways Scandinavian approaches education? And why don't we? Of course, I, I, I think this is a very interesting question and there's probably a whole series on its own. So the Scandinavian education system is the envy of the world. Mm. I think we can learn a lot from them. I'm going to say two things that many people don't agree with me. I think Australia made a difficult decision, which probably wasn't the right one, when it went for a public system and a private system. The private system now competes to get ATAR results, year 12 results, which have a moment in time value to a person. Um, NAPLAN seems to just demolish people and exhaust them um, as we train young children to write exams and they're all at different points in their development. Why wouldn't we do what the Scandinavians have done and have one system, it's called school, and everybody, black, white, rich, poor, boy, girl, whatever, 
go to school and everyone's treated and we treat that as a personalized learning experience for each child who has different needs and we're all going to live to 120 so what's the rush mm. why don't we slow it down why don't we use play and curiosity and creativity in those systems i think we have a lot to learn from them NAPLAN results will show that Finland is ahead of Australia. We have much to learn. And I'll add one more thing to that. We have a dual health system. I think the private public school system, the private public health system are divisive in our community. Agreed. Those who have get something that is different from those who have no choice at all. Why would you do that in a rich, modern democracy? Is a question that we all need to think about. Maybe it's too hard to unpick, but we're living with the consequences of it. Mm. And that's interesting. I, I've got a son who's young and I'm looking at schools and I grew up in the private, uh, sorry, in the public school system and my husband grew up in the private school system. And so when we talk about education for our baby, it's quite interesting. I'm one of, Obviously, you, you want the best for your kids and that's what Absolutely. I'm learning. So you do skew to private, but it kind of makes me a bit sad for the public system. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. totally agree in that sense that why is it divided? How do we unpick it? Yes, it's interesting. Both my my husband and I are both publicly educated and we decided to educate our children publicly. Now, of course, both of our children did extremely well in the public system, but then you were with a mother like me at home going, so what's your homework, you know, type <laughs> yeah. A person. Yeah. And I think family matters most above all. Mm. I think that's important. Um, and good schooling is essential. Great teachers who are curious and interested and love working with young people are the essential component beyond family. Um, How we get that right in our society matters. And I think broadly, our public system is not a bad, is, is a good system. I like the Australian public system, but it could be better. And we need to think about what that social interaction is then in a world that is totally globally connected in a different way from the way Australia runs its system. Those are my personal views. That is not a view of the university, of course. Um, The university would be agnostic on those matters. We don't involve ourselves in politics. But since you asked the question, I think it's worthy of debate. Yeah. For students leaving school and becoming a school graduate, graduate planning to study universities um, and studying a course, especially when a lot of, I find I'm coming across a lot of kids these days coming out of school, not sure what they want to do. What would you suggest for them to study tomorrow, a course particular, or even just the way to approach their studies or their next chapter of life? Always go with interests. Humans have values that they that they get when they're young, probably usually from family, and they keep those forever. Interests change as you get older. You know, when I went to university, I did a science degree. Now, I'd probably go and do something in the arts if I was going to study again, because I'm interested in that, that you know, in in those sorts of things and um, where I am. Interest trumps everything. If you don't know what you want to do, why not take some time out and go and do something completely different? If you've been at school all your life, this is particularly for young people, um, take a year out, go and work somewhere, go and volunteer somewhere, see how the rest of the world lives um, and then make your decision about whether university is for you or whether you want to go to TAFE and get a skill based, in go and get a skill which you can use immediately um, or some other endeavour. But mostly 
don't go to university because everybody else does because if you're bored you'll you won't do as well and you'll waste mm. a golden opportunity to have the time of your life the one thing about higher education university particularly is if you get in and you're doing something interesting it is a memorable thing that you will remember forever don't waste that by treating it lightly and thinking oh i'll just go and do a I don't, because my friends are, and then you come out and say, well, that was a waste of time. What a waste of your life. You only get one chance at life. So do always interest first. And if it's not what you're interested in, then don't do it. Go and do something else. Go to the start, go to a startup and, and have some fun, volunteer, travel around the world, work, go and work somewhere. Work is often a great sobering up. You find something interesting <laughs> very quickly, I find. That and is true. For mature age people, most mature age people know what they are interested in and so it's an easier decision. But for our, our younger people, particularly because our young people graduate from school so early relative to the, you know, if you think of the Scandinavians, um, it's often quite hard. In year nine, 13, 14, they're making decisions about jobs they're going to do 10 years down the road. It's probably a bit early. Mm. Yeah. We talk about all of this advice and, and a lot of times kids come out of school and they're overwhelmed with opinions from their parents, and which I totally understand. I get all of that. But sometimes they just need an unbiased advice from another adult potentially, whether you're a kid or even, you know, now I'm talking 25, 35, even 50, having mentors in, mm. in one's life. How important is the role of a mentor in today's society for kids at school and at uni also in five or ten years' time, how important will mentors be? Mm. I think they'll be they're increasingly important as we go more digital and everything's on a screen. You know, we're humans and we love being with other humans. So I think mentors and peer groups, you know, a friendly peer group that has your best interests at heart is the best thing that you can have, as you probably know from your own life. Family, you know, family is one thing, but you need other people who are less judgmental. Um, who will help you. I've had mentors my whole life. You have to choose your mentors wisely and they're not people who are going to prop you up all the time. They're going to support you but they're also going to hold up the mirror and say, well this is what you've said, now what do you want to do? So they're helping you to make your own decisions. Essential. Um, at school, of course, teachers have that amazing role as you go into university, peer groups, and then choosing people as you start to go into the next stage of your life who can give you advice and who have wisdom that you respect is, I think, one of the differences between those who can be successful and those who don't pay enough attention to what is it that I want for myself as I go forward. And you do need a bit of self-interest to plan it through and mentors can help um, choose one, choose them wisely. I could sit here all day and pick your brains. I find you such a wise woman <laughs> who has feels like you have all the answers written in a little black book. But I have two more questions that aren't related to education. Maybe they are. Um, the first one is, which we finish on 21st Century Women, a quote that you live by or m might inspire you. So I'm an educator. Um, so I, the quote to Deacon, if you said to people at Deacon, what does she say? I always say, students are true north. You know, educating the next generation must be the thing that would inspire everyone who works in the education system to get up in the morning and try a bit harder. My other quote that I always say to everyone is, take your opportunities. If you see something and you think it's interesting, jump in. Mm. Why would you waste the precious moments of your life hesitating? 
waiting for everything to be perfect. Just jump in and go for it. And lastly, what is a book you'd recommend? Uh You've probably got multiple, but just one if you can. Okay, the one that I think uh, might be appropriate here is, uh, have you read Educated, a memoir by Tara? No, I haven't. um, Tara Westover. um, And she was someone who worked, who lived in um, a survivalist family like the Amish and had no education at about the age of 17 or 18. And she now has a PhD and... um, was totally self-educated and her book goes through the the trauma and the joy of her life and I think it's changing for everyone um, if you can get it educated a memoir Tara Westover is inspirational for everyone you know and what can be done if you take your life in hand it's very I'm going to read the book thank you Jane mm-hmm. thank you so much for today you've been great Thank you, Jenna, for your interest. You've been listening to 21st Century Women podcast with Jenna Watts. To hear more stories about fabulous women doing interesting things, you can subscribe to the 21st Century Women podcast via iTunes or Spotify. If you'd like to leave a comment, you can post a review on iTunes or at jennawatts.com.au slash podcast. On the website, you can also check out the latest blog posts and notes on each podcast. Until next time.